Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for the WAM Leaders Full Year Results Webinar. My name is Olivia Harris, and I'm joined today by WAM Leaders Lead Portfolio Manager Matthew Haupt and Portfolio Manager John Ayu. Um, before we begin, there is a disclaimer displayed for you on the screen to, to read. Um, that's just to say that everything we discuss today is general in nature only and is not considered financial advice. Um, today, uh, to start, I will first give you an update on the WAM leaders full year results, which were announced to the ASX earlier this month. And then I will pass over to Matt and John to discuss the market. Um, so let's start with portfolio performance. Um, the WAM leaders investment portfolio performed strongly during the year to 30 June 2023, increasing 13.5%. Uh, um, since inception in May 2016, WAM leaders has achieved 14% investment portfolio performance, uh, outperforming the S&P ASX 200 accumulation index by 5.6%. The WAM leaders board of directors declared a full year fully frank dividend of 9 cents per share, and this represents a 6% dividend yield on yesterday's share price of $1.50 per share. The profits reserve was 36.1 cents per share as at 31 July 2023, representing four years of dividend coverage. And with that, I will now hand over to Lead Portfolio Manager, Matthew Holt. Uh, thanks, Olivia, and uh, welcome everyone to the WAM Leaders uh, webinar. Um, I thought I'd start off by talking about the year that was, um, and then we'll walk through our outlook for the market, and then I'll hand over to John, who will walk through some of the insights from reporting season. So I thought a good place to start was always looking back at the year that was. So uh, the financial year 2023 was a very good year for equities, um, despite significant headwinds. We had really uh, high rising interest rates. We had central banks trying to tackle inflation, and we had banking crisis as well, which was happening in March of 2023. So despite all these risks, equities went up. And I, I guess the question is, why did equities go up? And ultimately, it came down to a resilient uh, consumer. What we saw was a lot of participants were talking about recession calls, which, you know, we, we had sympathy towards. Um, but what, what we saw was a really resilient um, consumer. And I guess the, the key takeout here was around real wages increasing a lot and high levels of employment. So that uh, created an environment where corporate profitability was high, um, despite all these concerns. So I, I guess when you look back at the year, despite all these significant headwinds, the underlying health of the consumer, because they were fully employed and high had high levels of real wages, um, consumption continued at a at a pretty good pace. And I guess that we saw that across most companies throughout the years. So <clears throat> I guess the, the, the weakness, which um, was highlighted a lot throughout 2023 was in the manufacturing sector. Uh, you could argue we were in a global manufacturing recession. And that was predominantly by a slowdown after uh, the, the large demands good we saw coming through the COVID period. Um, and then there was an overstocking because of supply issues, manufacturers, uh, built up huge supplies, and what we saw was a real wind back in the goods um, demand. So uh, manufacturing looked terrible through 2023, but the I guess the bright spot was services. So you saw services um, across the world um, be hugely resilient, um, and they were printing a really high level. So that saw some strength across um, end markets and, again, increased employment, which was great for equity markets. 
Um, if we look at market outlook now, so markets, um, when we look at markets, we're always trying to work out if they're fairly valued, uh, what are the drivers going forward. And at the moment, we find it hard to come up with a clear catalyst which will drive the market higher. But on the flip side, we can't see a, identify a catalyst to drive it lower at this point in time. Um, the soft landing camp is very much the consensus at the moment. So what that means is everyone thinks the economy will hold in there, um, and we tend to agree with that in the short term. Um, so what will happen is equity markets are likely to trade sideways for a period. Um, and what we will see in 2024 is we think it will be the year of interest rate cuts. So in Australia, you can have a look at the forward interest rate curve and it says there's going to be one interest rate cut in Australia. In the US, there is over 1% of interest rate cuts. So 2024 will, will mark the year of interest rate cuts. And what we think this will mean is it will be supportive for valuations, but again, I think activity levels will decline. We're seeing a slowdown uh, across the world. So it's going to be a, a, a slowing environment, a slower earnings growth, higher costs. Um, so the environment, despite those um, headwinds, our investment process allows us to you know, trade through cycles. So we, we actually don't really care what part of the cycle we are in. Our investment process is nimble enough where we can identify opportunities in all markets. Um, so I can envisage us positioning in a slightly more defensive way, more conservative way um, over the next period. Uh, but saying that, there was a few remarkable opportunities coming out of reporting season. So I think overall the backdrop is quite supportive in the short term. We think medium term is going to get a little bit tougher, especially on the growth front, earnings growth. Um, but ultimately, we're going to go into an interest rate cutting cycle, which, again, is traditionally pretty good for equities uh, once you commence that and uh, a part way through that. So overall, uh, I, I think the environment short term is, is pretty benign, mm. um, but ultimately it's going to get tougher. Uh, but we can, we can invest through this cycle and then uh, 2024 will be the year of interest rate cuts. So that will be the start of a new cycle. So I'll probably leave that there. And I'll hand over to John now, who will run through some of the insights we saw from reporting season. Okay. Uh, thank you, Matt, and uh, welcome, everyone, and appreciate your time this morning. Uh, it was probably... We characterised the last reporting season, the last little period, is probably one of the trickier uh, periods that we faced in some time. Why we would say that is the volatility and the composition of earnings and reporting was vastly different from what we've seen over the last decade, where uh, it was a lot easier to quantify revenue and costs and uh, the, the trends that uh, certain companies and sectors were directionally moving in. Where we are today, I'll call out a few things that we've identified that we'll be conscious of going forward, and I think the market, um, again, will be focusing on. Firstly, revenue trends have slowed down. Uh, to Matt's point around being cautious, we were probably a little bit cautious too soon. And what we saw was towards the, the latter half of last financial year, those revenue trends hold up a bit longer than we thought, but they have actually slowed down in you know, post-reporting uh, periods. And as we get into August and September, we continue to see a, a more rapid slowdown for the top line for most companies globally. So from that standpoint, we have become more and more cautious around the outlook uh, for, for companies broadly uh, around that revenue. The second factor that we uh, became more and more aware of and you saw in reporting season was the ability for analysts and market participants to forecast the cost of debt. The, the cost of debt within balance sheets, so companies like Ramsey and the like where 
there was material spirals on the on, on their balance sheet and the, and the amount of money they have to pay uh, to facilitate uh, their balance sheets. That was something that the market uh, probably was focused on, but not enough. And what we've seen is the cost of debt, uh, the inflationary pressures on companies, um, more broadly around capex in the mining space. Uh, where blowouts in from, from mining companies when it comes to doing projects, just doing day-to-day operations, they have actually heavily weighed on the, the, the carrying value of assets, also on the profitability of those assets as they, uh, as they start to produce. And the other area in the retail space and other spaces is wage inflation. We're still yet to see the full impacts of wage inflation to carry through uh, the P&Ls of companies. Uh, you, when you start talking to Wes Farmers and Woolworths and Coles and they're talking, you know, 4 5 6% wage inflation, that's commences this year uh, in, ro- in slowing revenue trend environments. Um, for us, that's a very diffi- it's a very difficult recipe to combat. And we really need to isolate and focus on companies that have the ability to manage the cost bases going through these these parts of the cycle, uh, and those that don't, we need to be really cautious of, uh, uh, ensure that we find those companies with the self-help and the ability to navigate these tough these tough waters that we're heading into. Um, as Matt said, also what we did find was a lot of opportunities come out in reporting season, and I identify a couple of those, and we've already started to see a few of the questions come through. So we want to be we want to make sure that we leave enough time to answer everyone's questions today. But, you know, names that we really, really liked um, and one which actually is very topical at the moment is Aurora, which uh, announced a material acquisition this morning. We think today's acquisition is a game changer for that company. Um, it, 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 it moves away from what they've uh, a, a more CPI plus growth business to a more cyclical uh, uh exposure to luxury brands and we think it's a step change and we really like the opportunity that it presents so we will be participating your money uh, in that capital raising today Uh, other names like qbe treasury wine challenger brambles and we've actually now uh, put wise tech in a meaningful way to the portfolio we think these are companies that uh, should carry the portfolio for the next 12 to 18 months and we really like what they provided us uh, and things that we would add to the watch list where we're not ready to pull the trigger quite yet, but things that we've identified as potential opportunities. These names are Domino's, A2, Ramsey, which we haven't owned for some time, uh, Stockland and Iris. Now, these are these are companies that all have some warts on them, we'll say, but uh, we will identify the, the value opportunity and ensure that if we uh, do decide to pull the trigger one way or another, um, they'll be in the in, in favour of this for shareholders. So... Uh, that's probably the wrap-up of reporting season. Other themes that emerged was the reach of government. Uh, we're starting to see increased amount of government policy uh, that's going to impact uh, the earnings of companies and Qantas. Now, we know there's a question on Qantas later, so we'll save that for later. But Qantas is one that's being impacted by government reach, uh, the oil and gas space, um, coal, the gaming sector. Uh, we're starting to see the prevalence of, of um, government reach impact the earnings of these companies. Uh Unfortunately, theft and what they call shrinkage in uh, pockets of uh, retail has started to emerge as a, a material headwind as well. So we're going to see uh, capex or we'll spend from people, the likes of Coles and Woolworths and Weather Farmers uh, to police, and I think they generate a lot of headlines in the press around that. But it's actually having a material impact on on margins of companies, which are part of cyclical downturns um, and the way that we manage cyclical downturns. So it's clear that we are going to go through a tough period going forward, um, and how we navigate that, uh, it's it's going to be challenging, but we should be there. Yeah, and I was just going to add there, the, the thing that we're really watching is the labour market. So the labour market um, has been remarkably resilient and we touched on that, but 
there is signs of sort of um, some early signs, I guess. So for us, the labour market is crucial this year. That's the one thing we'll be watching um, every bit of data we can get our hands on around uh, employment and wage growth. So, I mean, they'll be the key key drivers we're watching this year. Um, but I think that's that's about it from us, Olivia. If you, if you want to open up to questions now, we can um, go through those. Thanks, Matt and John. Yes, we'll get right into questions. Uh, lots coming through, so everybody, please keep sending your questions because we'll try to get to them all. Um, if we don't get to your question during the webinar, we will contact you afterwards. Um, the first one is from George. Could you please comment on the DEXIS result and your outlook, your outlook for the company? Um, and maybe you can touch on your comments on the property sector as well. Yeah, uh, so DEXIS, we, we caught up with DEXIS recently on the result. Um, I guess the key takeaway from us from us is the the company is doing extremely well in an incredibly tough environment. Um, probably the difference when we saw them last, I, I think there's a little bit more hope around a quick turnaround in the cycle. What was evident um, this meeting was it's going to be a little bit more drawn out. So, um, you know, for us, we were investing in the company because it was a heavily discounted um, asset to it was NTA. Um, and we thought maybe interest rates would get cut more aggressively. And what we're seeing is a higher for longer environment, which is not ideal for Texas because it becomes a more of a grind cycle rather than a quick turnaround. So um, the investment horizon had, had increased a lot from what where we thought we'd get rewarded quite quickly. So for us, great result, great company, great management. Um, the cycle is they're fighting the cycle and the cycle um, in the absence of a big interest rate cutting cycle, it's going to be a bit of a grind there. So we've reduced that holding materially, uh, but still like the fundamentals. But um, we were running it around 5% of the portfolio. Now it's way down, like 1.5%, 1.25% of the portfolio. So the conviction around the thesis hasn't decreased. It's really the timing. So we just don't want to tie capital up for that longer period of time. Thanks, Matt. Uh, the next company that we are getting some questions on, we've gotten quite a few questions on uh, Star Entertainment. So can you just provide some comment on Star um, and if you think all of the negativity has already been factored into the share price? Or do you think there's potential for another unknown unknown to spring up? <laughs> Thanks, Olivia. Um, I guess we've been hit with the two uh, most controversial positions in our portfolio straight away. So <laughs> I, I did notice there was a question from Jeffrey around Star and Dexas, are they mistakes? Uh, I would say Star is definitely a mistake. Um, we're allowed. We, we do make mistakes from time to time, but it's how we manage that risk in the portfolio, which is important. And with Dexas, where we went too early, our average entry price on Dexas was in the sevens, and we got a couple of dividends on the way through, and we our average exit of those positions on reducing our position was above eight dollars. So we managed to reduce the uh, the impact on shareholders there, and we actually made a profit on the vast majority of it. Where the mistake was was opportunity costs, where we didn't actually uh, deploy that, um, that that capital to things that should have outperformed. So, but with Star is very different. Um, Star, we you know, if we take a step back, we the big mistake we made was uh, we didn't appreciate the impact that the reach of government would have on earnings. And the one thing I'll call out was there was five hundred and ninety-five million dollars worth of legal costs um, associated with the last result of Star. Um, you know, I'll go off on a slight tangent here and uh, forgive me for, for this, but when we invest as shareholders, and one of the things that we've, we've recently noticed is that the sins of the board and management have been suffered on the shareholders. 
we weren't the ones that made the mistakes. We made the mistakes in the investment, but we didn't make the mistakes from the earnings standpoint. And the shareholders in Star are the ones that borne all the responsibility and all the pain when it came to uh, the mistakes that regulators, man management and government had made in regulating this industry. Uh, going forward, what we can say is that the lessons of the last 10 years have been learnt. And what we can say is that STARS management have taken large steps in actually turning around this organisation and ensuring that those mistakes and those unknown unknowns don't happen again. Uh, so from that standpoint, we are very pleased with what Robbie and the team have done. Uh, they're not out of the woods in any regard. This is a long battle and we are with them for the long haul now. Uh, we did participate in the capital raising and uh, our biggest weight in the name is more recent than it was in the past. So we've been able to manage our size, okay, but it hasn't had an impact on shareholders and, and our performance over the last 12 months uh, in particular. Uh, as Where we stand today, I think a lot of the reform has taken place. A lot of the change has been done. What's outstanding is the refinancing of the existing debt facilities. Um, we have as much visibility as everyone else does, what's publicly available there. Um, we're confident they'll get through that. I think the, the, the last few fines are the last, the last two outstanding things. Again, uh, in proportion to the size of the company, to, to its peers, uh, we think they'll be able to manage that. And what we do know is in 2024 and 2025, when uh, Queen's Wharf is open and, and a lot of the reforms taken place, these are still critical infrastructure assets for the Australian tourism industry. They still provide numerous jobs um, for Australians and provide a fundamental purpose for that. So we are encouraged by the New South Wales government and the way that they handled the current, I'll be clear, the current New South Wales government and the way they handled the reform of the tax. Uh, we think uh, the Treasurer Mookie was outstanding in the way that he uh, pivoted from some of the mistakes of the previous government. And with that, we, we, we are excited about the next 24 to 36 months that Star has ahead of it. It's not out of the woods. They, they need to regain their social licence and they're doing everything they possibly can. Uh, and, you know, we're there for the long haul. Thanks. Thanks very much, John. Um, the next question is from David. Uh, it's about growing the size of WAM leaders. So do you have a preference on a way to raise capital, either through a share purchase plan or a rights issue? Um, and are there any plans in the pipeline for further issuance of shares? Yeah, I mean, thanks for the question. Uh, obviously, um, we're the managers of the money. We don't get to decide on the capital uh, raisings or the um, how it's done. Uh, I, I guess... I'll answer the first one. Do we have a, a plan on raising capital? No, not at this point. Um, do we have a preference between a rights and a share purchase plan? I, I guess it gets down to your idea of what's fair. Um, traditionally, rights issues are fairer, I guess. You know, if you hold a certain amount of stock, you get allocated a certain amount, where a share purchase plan really doesn't matter how much existing stock you own. Um, you can obviously take up more. So I, I guess it's what idea you have is fair. Um, I mean, theoretically, a rights issue is fairer, but then it also forces you to take those up as well. So both have got their pros and cons, but for us, we don't really have a, a huge preference on how it's done, but it's obviously up to the board about what what structure and when it's done. But um, I can say um, there's no real discussions mm -hmm. around raising um, capital um, within leaders at the moment. 
thanks very much, Matt. Um, John, you had mentioned briefly that we've got some questions on Qantas, so I'll turn to that one next. Um, can you just provide a comment on the company at the moment? Um, Anders has asked, has it reached its high watermark? Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that you, when you go through a news cycle or a, or, or a period of volatility like Qantas is going through, um, you always turn to how far can this go and what's next. And we've, we've started to see on Twitter from... Um, members of parliament suggesting a royal commission and uh, more reform into their profitability and fines from ACCC um, uh, pockets of the market. So do we think this is the end of the news flow for Qantas? Definitely not. Um, just to be clear, we're not investing in Qantas at the moment. Um, what we do know is that the business itself has a structural advantage in, in Australia in the domestic market and that domestic advantage will remain um, through time. Where a lot of the focus is on today is in the profitability and the pricing of international flights. And what stirred up the hornet's nest has been uh, the application of Qatar and other airlines for more international slots. We're starting to see governments, uh, state and federal split, and normally that's not a good sign. And uh, Albo defending uh, Qantas is a bit like a, a coach defending, a board defending a coach for a sporting team. Uh, you know that there's going to be a pivot pretty much, pretty, uh, a pivot soon. We would expect that there will be a review into international uh, capacity. Um, I think industry players, so tourism providers, um, air, uh, airport owners, I think they would all like to see more airlines fly into Australia. Um, how that happens and those uh, international agreements that need to be reached, um, that's a different level above us and we'll see, we'll see how um, governments ne negotiate those, those tactics. But what we do think is that uh, there will be more flights internationally and the profitability of Qantas in international business will change. Uh, but it is worth remembering in the past that international was never really, the, it was never the driver of profitability for this group. It's always been the domestic business that has driven profitability. So as when the banks went through the Royal Commission uh, and the like, those probably the dark, that's at the darkest before the dawn. So it's something that's definitely on our watch list. Um, our valuation assessment now thinks uh, kind of, uh, our valuation assessment today, we effectively get the international business for free. So if the share price were to go to the low fives, which it may potentially do on negative news flow, um, it'd certainly be a, something that we'd be considering uh, as an investment going forward. But we think news flow will continue to be hard and negative on the company for the foreseeable future. Thanks, John. Uh, the next question is from a shareholder named Matt. He has asked, where do you see inflation going? Oil prices have gone up over 20% in the last three months. Do you see inflation reaccelerating? And if so, how are you positioning the portfolio? Yeah, that's a great question and very observant as well. It's something we've been discussing mm. over the past week, actually, the impact of oil, because oil has a better track record of predicting inflation than economists um, and very direct. So it's really, when I looked at it like earlier in the week, it's really... March of last year was the peak um, and then it's fallen down. Um, but then it's going to start cycling through, um, you know, op OPEX, operation, operational expenses, you know, really now. So you're seeing a deceleration. I mean, the, the, the thing we look at is the break-even rates, which are 
you know, market-based rates. That's the market's interpretation of inflation. And, you know, the five-year rates are 2.3% and the the five-year rate in five years' time is 2.4%. So inflation expectations are actually grounded um, in the range. Um, the trajectories are lower at the moment. You're seeing it roll over, but you're 100% right. Oil will be actually uh, picking up inflation in on, in the operating expenses. So we expect inflation to re-accelerate um, probably in the first quarter of next year, of the calendar year. Uh, that's when we think it will start to pick up and you will start to get moderation um, uh, through other names too. But when you break down inflation at the moment, it's really um, a, a lot of components are becoming quite sticky. So, yeah, this oil we think is a real, which something actually could upset the market, um, that higher for longer, stickier inflation. So it's something we're watching. Um, but it's really, again, dependent upon OPEC. What, what do OPEC do? Uh, so far they've held together. That's the, the, um, the group uh, that controls basically... I think it's like 40% of oil supply, 35%. Um, they've been cutting dramatically into this um, market. So you've got a real physical tightness in the market, floating storage is at low levels. Um, so all the ingredients are there for a tighter oil market. So, yeah, it's a great point, Matt. And we think, um, yeah, first quarter next year will start to pick up and then that will change the rate dynamics as well. Um, you know, those forward interest rates might come out of the market as well. So a really key thing to watch and, um, yeah, something we've been discussing quite quite a lot over the last week or so. Thanks, Matt. The next question is from Lee. Um, let's see, Lee's asked, how does WAM leaders see the reported slowdown in the Chinese economy and how will this affect the companies that you hold in the portfolio? Yeah, um, so another great question, really topical as well, is around China uh, I read a stat the other day. China's been responsible for 40% of the global growth over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's such an important part of the global uh, economic picture now. What we saw out of uh, China was post-COVID, they came out of COVID very late. They hoped that reopening the economy would see, you know, consumption really pick up. But unfortunately for them, consumption didn't pick up because in the background, the asset prices, which are you know, house prices and the like, around 60% of um, everyone's personal balance sheet. So they were watching their biggest asset fall in value and that wasn't translating into consumption. So the government finally, you know, as of probably the last month or so, really stepped up support because they've realised they've got to stabilise asset prices, even get asset price growth to un unlock consumption. And we're seeing a huge change in rhetoric out of the Chinese government. So, you know, China's probably everyone's called the death of China for you know, you know, fifteen times mm -hmm. in the last ten years. It's it's never eventuated because a lot of people put it look through the lens of an open economy. They're a closed economy, so they can actually uh, change things quite dramatically. Um, so we are actually positioned the portfolio to take advantage of, you know, some of the the turnaround um, in the property sector and infrastructure because. Global growth is pretty slow, so they have to turn internally. And the, the lever they know how to pull internally to get growth is through spending, through infrastructure. So we think fixed asset investment uh, will actually be uh, quite a tailwind for the iron ore sector. So the, the, the names we're playing in a meaningful manner are Rio as our number one preference, uh, and then BHP. And then if you go down the chain a little bit, a little 
less exposure, but uh, companies like Aluka, which have been really hit after reporting season, and South 32 as well, uh, to a lesser extent. That, that it's not as direct as Rio and BHP, but they're the ones we're really putting a lot of um, shareholders' money into because we think there will be a clear trade here. And we're starting to see some of the sentiment turn because I think the sentiment in China uh, on China at the moment is at all-time lows. Everyone thinks it's almost uninvestable. And, and global money is not going there, and we think that will change over the next few weeks. And outside of resources, um, leaders' primary exposure to China is Treasury wine, um, where we think China reopening and, and relations between Australia and China continue to improve and following the Bali, um, uh, the Bali decision between the governments, we think the opening up of the Chinese market will add another lever of growth uh, for TWE following their improved distribution model throughout uh, broader Asia and their strong acquisitions that they've made in uh, the US. So we think uh, TWE will uh, benefit as um, relations continue to improve and what they've been able to derive over the last two years uh, and with addition to the Chinese reopening, push it put into good stead. Uh, and the other name that we're looking at, um, it's a smaller position and it's something that we're looking at from a brand perspective and we're attracted to good businesses with great brands that going through cyclical or, or tough periods and that's A2 Milk. Um, and what we're trying to get our heads around there is around the, around the birth rate in China, how that uh, affects earnings going forward and what the trajectory of that birth rate. Uh, these are really uh, one of the mega themes that we've got to try to get our heads around. But the brand is incredibly strong, the product is incredibly good, and the valuation is incredibly attractive. So uh, it's one that's definitely on our watch list and potentially could, uh, if, 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 if things stack up, could be a bigger position in the portfolio. Thanks, Matt and John. Um, we're getting a couple questions on Endeavour Group, um, one from Peter and one from Richard. So can you provide some comment on Endeavour Group and if you see the potential for a likely shift in sentiment? <clears throat> yeah, so we, again, we caught up with Endeavour and it's, it's a decent position in the portfolio. Um, so we caught up with them in August. Um, I, I guess the key thing for Endeavour, so Endeavour owns Dan Murphy's and, you know, pubs and clubs uh, in its most simplest form. Um so we caught up with them and, and what happened, again, similar to Star, the, the Victorian government came out. I mean, this really sent the share price lower, talking about some of the restrictions around gaming and potential tax changes. Um, and the share price, I think, on the day was down 15%. Yeah, it, was like, it, was, it was marked down quite aggressively. Um, so um, the business is performing really well. So we caught up with the, the company. Their result was great. Um, you know, the high interest costs are coming through like most companies. But, again, that, their clients um, or customers are actually quite resilient. So um, they haven't seen any slowdown at the moment. Um, and the, their business is tracking quite well. They have po they've had positive um, sales growth across, you know, most of their businesses um, – you know, in a decent manner. So we think the, the company looks incredibly cheap at this point in time. We're a little bit scarred post-star mm. with gaming uh, <laughs> regulation. But, again, we think Endeavour is in a much better position. Um, and we really like their business. I mean, Dan Murphy's is a fantastic business, um, very resilient. And it's worth remembering that Dan Murphy's is the vast majority of the business. Yeah. And when you talk about products and brands and stores, Dan Murphy's is right up there with the Bunnings. Mm. So these are these are assets which are undervalued. And I think in the fullness of time, uh, Dan Murphy's will be realised as 
you know, one of the best businesses in the country and the valuation will reflect that in time. Yeah, yeah. so we, we like Endeavour, yeah. uh, despite some potential uh, regulation headwinds and I guess maybe the other thing people are worried about is the consumer, uh, the slowdown there, which, you know, ultimately they will get hit, but um, we think the valuation more than takes into account and it's reflected that already, so we're, we're happy to be invested in Endeavour. Thanks, guys. And we've also got a couple of questions coming through on Ramsey, which, John, I think you touched on earlier. Um, so from Peter and from Craig, can you just comment on your take on Ramsey um, and if there's a catalyst that would stop the decline? Yeah, um, thanks for that question on Ramsey. I did mention that we, uh, following the result day, we bought some stock around that $47, $48 level. Um, and that's the first time since, I think, $69 that we'd owned it. Um, and what happened at the result, and I think what was our biggest concern, was the amount of debt. Um, firstly, the amount of debt that the business was carrying, and secondly, uh, the cost base and the wage inflation that they would have suffered from EBAs and the like from uh, nurses and other staff. So that came through in the result, leading to 20 to 30% downgrades at the, um, in the August results. Why, do we, why are we attracted to it today, and why do we put a position back in the portfolio? And what are the catalysts? Well, firstly, there's asset sales. Uh, Sime Derby, which is their Malaysian asset, uh, they could realise circa seven or $800 million worth of cash there, which can bring down the, the, the total quantum of debt. Uh, secondly, what we do know at these assets and the, the infrastructure-like assets that hospitals do provide um, have a place and have a purpose in society. So we don't think the government's going to come in and uh, erode their earnings any day soon. So we think that as uh, relations with Medibank and other uh, private health insurance providers um, worsened and it will worsen, uh, I think the outcomes for shareholders will get better because the current agreements and the current escalation of costs that they currently have with uh, those, Medi those health insurance providers, uh, they'll be ripped up and, and start again to cover a lot of the extra costs that have been borne by hospital providers. And as uh, people start to return to hospital and um, surgeries and the like take place, uh, the earnings in Europe um, and Australia stabilise, this is a good business and it's a high quality business that we want to own. Uh, potentially some short-term headwinds around uh, the debt structure and, you know, we would welcome a capital raising, we'd happily participate in a capital raising, but the board won't want to do that. So I think that we just need to ride out again 12 months uh, of uh, increased debt costs and as earnings return, it's something that could potentially be much higher in the portfolio. Uh, but as we often do, we'll put an incubation position in there, we'll watch it closely, and if the opportunities arise or if our fundamental analysis says uh, to have a crack, we will. Thanks, guys. Uh, the next question is on Woolworths. Um, the August results showed Woolworths maintaining its superiority to Coles in terms of business performance. Do you believe the current management is capable of turning performance around so it can catch up to Woolworths? and thereby making it a potential addition to the portfolio. <clears throat> Commenting on calls. Sorry. Yeah, it's a really um, interesting question and, and one we always think about. The, but what we've learned over time is the the turnaround within supermarkets takes a very, very mm -hmm. long time. I remember when we were first invested in Woolworths, um, you know, pre the turnaround, I mean, it was $18, I think mm -hmm. it was, and, you know, they, they had all these great plans, but it was really about three or four years in, into that journey before it really took traction. Um, the problem we have with Coles at the moment is they're starting way behind and then they've got, um, you know, really big issues with their supply chain. Um, the new systems they're putting in place are over budget, over time, delayed. 
So we just struggle to see over the next few years how they're going to make inroads when they're actually fighting their own internal battles. So for us, Woolworths is a clear leader. Um, management are fant fantastic. We don't own Coles at this point in time. Would we look at Coles? Yes, if it got cheap enough. But again, we think they're fighting internal battle battles, let alone fighting mm. the market battles. So for us, it's a very clear case of uh, being overweight Woolworths and not owning Coles at this point in time. Thanks, Matt. The next question is from Nick. What is the current cash holding of the portfolio and do you expect to increase that uh, over the next couple of months? I mean, cash is really a function of opportunities and, um, you know, at the moment we're finding quite a lot of opportunities and John mentioned it this morning, you know, we've got Aurora, which hopefully um, will be a significant addition to the portfolio. So we're going to need a bit of cash there. But at the moment, running about 4% cash, um, cash, I mean, it, I, I can't really see it moving too far unless there's a clear inflection point. Um, but it generally runs between 2 and 5% through most most of the year um, unless there's a clear inflection point either way where we're, we're like equities are going to rally, then we actually, you know, dial up some of the exposure or if we obviously think equities will fall, we'll, we'll pull back exposure. But generally we do all our work within the, the holdings within the portfolio cash lever is very rarely used. It's really a high conviction call when we pull the cash lever. It's more portfolio construction, which is real how we manage risk through the cycle. Thanks, Matt. The next question is from Sally. Does the WAM Leaders Investment Portfolio have any exposure to lithium? Yeah, we do have some lithium, um, significantly less than what it was probably three months ago. Uh, the names that we own today are Pilbara, following that pullback, uh, uh, the last result, and Mineral Resources. Um, the others in the space that we have an eye on um, is Allchem, uh, but we think that's probably more fully valued relative to the other two. So if I focus on uh, Mineral Resources and Pilbara, Pilbara, the last update provided a lot of concern for the market in the increased in the increased amount of capital that need to spend on their on their existing projects. I think for us, what we'd like to see from Pilbara is uh, a bit like Fortescue and what Fortescue did for years in its early days, just reinvest in its single asset, develop that asset over and over and over and keep expanding the footprint and the capacity that you can derive from that. So I think if with some reflection, some focus, Pilbara has, is, is the top tier asset that we can see today, has the most leverage if they get things right. Uh, we're not quite there to pull a, make it a really big weight in the portfolio, given uh, some of the industry headwinds and um, some of the concerns around its capital profile. So we'll watch that one again. And Min Resources, um, you know, similar high-quality uh, high quality, uh, lithium provider, producer. Uh, balance sheet is somewhat of a concern for us and for the market. Uh, we would need to see some of their cash flow and some of their CapEx budgets maintained. So cash flow generation to come through and their CapEx budgets to be maintained, again, for us to increase the weighting in those ones uh, in totality. But as Matt said, uh, our focus and our, 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 our resource positioning has very much been tilted towards BHP and Rio, and we have some of these positions like mineral resources and uh, Pilbara um, towards the lower end of the portfolio. Thanks, John. Um, the next question, we've got a couple coming through on Fortescue. Uh, Doug and Neva have asked, um, do you have a view on Fortescue? 
Um, and has the recent turmoil with executive departures provided um, a buying opportunity? Or do you think Fortescue's focus on hydrogen is perhaps dragging its performance? The, the, the biggest challenge with Fortescue is not so much what we think, it's what the market's going to think. Um, we always like to support strong management, but what we've seen is that with 11 or 12 senior management leave the organisation, there is a clearly uh, a misalignment of what uh, the chairman would like and other people within the organisation want. If it was a pure iron ore play, which is what it's been for, for since day one, um, it would be a lot more compelling for us today. But the difficulty in assessing Fortescue today is trying to work out what uh, the hydrogen projects are worth. And as it stands and from the publicly available information, we don't know the capital structure. We don't know how much money Fortescue is going to deploy, how much capital partners are going to deploy, what the return on that capital is going to be, where that hydrogen is going to go. So as you go down that rabbit hole, more and more questions arise. Um, we're not going to question that hydrogen is going to work because it will, uh, at, uh, but at what return is what what our focus is. is. Uh, the more it pulls back, the more attractive it becomes. Um, like all things, if you can get something for free, so if we're if we're if we're going to get the hydrogen part of the business for free, and 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 Fortescue and the chairman say that only X percent of the free cash flow is going to be uh, geared towards FFO. Um, again, it'll be something to for us to consider. But as we stand today, it's a lot easier um, to buy Rio and BHP given the vast majority of other shareholders and investors out there will play it the same way. Yeah, I was just going to say, you can't make an investment if you can't model it. And unfortunately, Fortescue is in a position where we can't model it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll never tell management what they need to do. We'll just do it by our investments yeah. and we don't own Fortescue. So, um, you know... We were saying we're not in the business of telling billionaires what they can do, what they can and not do. Um, but, yeah, we can vote by our where we deploy capital and it's just too hard to deploy capital into Fortescue at this point in time. And, and good luck if they can do it and succeed, all the best. But um, for us and protecting shareholder money, uh, we unfortunately can't get comfort. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Um, we've got a few questions from Kim on interest rates. Um, so what's your outlook for interest rates in the U.S.? And will the rate differential between the U.S. and Australia cause the RBA to eventually raise rates higher in line with the Western world? And do you plan to rotate to more defensive sectors? I mean, that's that's one of the hardest questions out there at the moment is, and, and it's changed a lot. Um, I guess... I'll walk through what's changed. A lot of the interest rate cuts have come out of the market in 2024 already as the economy has been a lot more resilient than people thought. Um, will the RBA follow the Fed up? Uh, highly unlikely. Um, we think the Fed will be hiking, uh, cutting, um, not aggressively, but they will start their cutting cycle next year. So the RBA um, have been quite slow on their hiking cycle, but we think... The, tr the transmission mechanism is so much different in Australia than the US, obviously with the way mortgages work, the variable rate mortgages. So the transmission mechanism is quite direct in Australia. Um, but you're, you're fundamentally right. Australia used to trade at a premium on rates to the US, you know, through all periods. And um, for some reason, we're trading below at the moment. So uh, it is quite bizarre, um, but... 
the US have been very, very aggressive versus the rest of the world, except for, you know, Canada and New Zealand have obviously been aggressive as well. Um, but we think the RBA, you know, that they meet today, unlikely to change. The market's got zero chance of a, a hike in today. Um, and there's basically no more interest rates um, in the Australian futures curve where you can sort of see market expectations. And we've got one cut in December 24. Uh, being the start of the cutting cycle. So we think the US, I think I touched on it earlier, has got a 1% of interest rate cuts in 2024. By the time we are hitting December 24, they'll be about aligned. So um, we think the US will come back to this Australian level of interest rates. Um, obviously, the RBA do look at foreign exchange, the Australian dollar. So... Um, you know, they, they could respond to the Australian dollar moving, you know, that, that could sway them either way. But I think that first scenario of the US meeting Australia is the most likely one at this point in time. Um, also, if you look at oil, we, we touched on earlier oil prices, that could be the spanner in the works for everything. If oil price does go over $100, $120, um, those interest rate cuts are coming out of the market. Mm. Um, or it could for, fast forward a, a potential, you know, crash scenario uh, where interest rates would be cut in response to an emergency. So um, very dynamic, and I mean that's that's the advantage of our process is we're looking daily at these things to 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 change the portfolio. Will we go more um, defensive? I, I think the the underlying tone we're always investing quality mm. businesses, so we never go up the risk spectrum by investing in low quality business. So the way we would do it, um, we would go more defensive if you saw, you know, the labour market falling. Um, so if unemployment increased, we'd, we'd certainly go more defensive. You know, we are tilting the portfolio a little bit more defensive at the moment. So we've added, um, you know, some gold exposure and some transurban just initial positions to try and add a little bit of defence, you know, Telstra as well, uh, Woolworths. So... We are sort of moving in that direction, but we don't have enough of a, a catalyst mm. to really deploy into a defensive position at the moment because the market is in soft landing mode at the moment. Everyone equities are expensive, but everyone still wants to own equities, and we there's no short-term catalyst to change that at the moment. The other thing about our portfolio, it, it probably lacks a lot of the momentum stocks that are outperforming in the market at the moment for the short term. We've decided to... Uh, have a few more battleground stocks, as we prefer to call it, stocks that have uh, have more short or medium-term headwinds that we think have longer-term valuation support. And we, we prefer to own those uh, through these cycles where um, the upside is far more vast than, than these stocks that have been bid up on, on short-term um, you know, earnings results. Thanks, guys. Uh, the next question is from Simon. Uh, he's asked, what Australian economic data are you most concerned about that might cause you to turn more negative on the market? Employment's probably where we'd be focused uh, primarily. Um, yeah, a lot of things like retail sales have turned negative um, now, but uh, if you look at the main driver of what, of what the outlook's going to be, it's unemployment. And what happens there? If you if you look at the most recent results period, a lot of companies are starting to focus on uh, that part of their businesses again. 
as wage uh, pressures start to come through, as those revenue trends start to slow down, uh, the management are always focused on driving bottom line. And the most efficient way to drive the bottom line in the in the, in the short term is is, is uh, headcount removal. And we think towards the back half of this year and early next year, we could see significant headcount removal in a lot of the large Australian listed companies. And if that does eventuate, that just that changes the focus from a soft landing to a hard landing. I think that's where a lot of our focus would be on right now. Yeah, in, in the very short term, it's really around, you know, credit card data, um, you know, arrears, the 30-day, 60-day, 90-day arrears through the banks and credit growth. Um, so that's sort of the, the short-term. Mm. Retail sales is another one. It's, it's a fairly good leading indicator. So, I mean, we, we watch everything. But, yeah, ultimately, the thing holding everything together is the employment rate and real wage growth at the moment. And if they break, then... Um, yeah, things will change quite dramatically. Thanks, guys. The next question is from Elizabeth. Does WAM leaders invest in APA? And if so, will you be taking up the current share offer? Yep, we, we certainly do invest do wanna, in APA. Do you want to give out your favourite quote on the company? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I call uh, APA the mini Macquarie. Um, it, it's got all the hallmarks of turning into like a, you know, the infrastructure business of Macquarie. Um you know, very early days, um, but it certainly does. I mean, for us, yeah, we did take up the um, uh, in, in the placement with the um, APA when we, they yeah, we took about rights issue. Yeah, the rights. Um, you know, when they took over Alinta, um, the energy business. Um, so for us, yeah, it's a great business. It's very defensive. It's not very exciting. It's not a business you'd go, um, wow, this is incredibly exciting. But we we don't mind boring businesses and. Um, this one generates a lot of cash and, you know, it does actually have some upside to new energy as well as, as they pivot the company away from the traditional, you know, gas pipelines. They have, they generate, you know, high levels, over a billion dollars of free cash. Um, there is significant opportunity for this company to transform themselves. They have to do it very sensibly and, and so far so good. Um, we're quite happy with the, the way they're progressing and we think the company you know, over the next 10 years could look a lot different and they have the cash flow to do it. So um, when you look at opportunities, if it was just a utility, uh, you know, with a, a regulated asset, you know, that's not that exciting. But at the moment, they're branching away from that and they're developing um, this business and it could turn into something quite good and meaningful over in, in the next decade. Thanks, Matt. Uh, the next question is from Blair. Your views on the ResMed share price weakness, please. I've got to say, we're getting hit with all the good questions, though. I like, I like, I like where this is going. Uh, so ResMed was uh, twofold, I think. Uh, the impacts on the share price twofold. Firstly, uh, the earnings result itself was a, was a miss. And if you go back to the previous quarter, management had indicated that there would be margin improvement and on gross margin improvement, and the result had no gross margin improvement. Uh, they can say what they want around mix and the like and what drives the margin, but the fact is that on a stock that was trading on the multiple that it was trading on, um, it needed to deliver on what it said. Even though revenue trends were being positive and the product and the like have been continually strong, uh, missing the margin when they explicitly told people that there was going to be margin improvement was a big no-no. Uh, so I think management have taken that lesson and we would look to, you know, on your question of going forward, what does it look like? I think going if they have if they have an ability to demonstrate that that margin uh, starts to track towards historical levels, then absolutely it would become an attractive investment opportunity. 
The second part uh, of what's going on with ResMed is the harder one to answer, and that and I'll be crude here. And there's a there's a, there's, there's a new fat drug out there, which basically people can take a drug, which actually uh, the argument, is, the bare argument on ResMed is you can take the the drug or the injection, and the need for ResMed masks and the like will dissipate, and the the, the addressable market going forward for ResMed will shrink. That view is very strong in the US as a lot of the drug companies are heavily promoting uh, the new drug as a wonder drug to fix all things. That's yet to be proven and we're probably on the side that are more skeptical on the ability for these drugs to combat everything. If anything, we're doing a lot of calls right now to understand the impacts on the addressable market um, for ResMed and other participants in the industry. Um, as a two as a twofold approach of taking the drugs and using the ResMed products, so the significant derating that ResMed has faced over the last month uh, is certainly an opportunity for us and the market to consider. Uh, firstly, if they get that margin right, uh, that will give us some short-term relief. Uh, will that lead to PE expansion, possibly? But the longer-term question around competitive drugs will take longer to play out. So for us, we will we have a small position today. Um, for it to become a more meaningful position, uh, we would need to see more and more data around the addressable market uh, and the impacts of those drugs on the addressable market. So it's something we're doing a lot of work on, uh, but certainly an interesting investment opportunity. Yeah, and I'm just going to add there, like the 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 swing away from fundamentals because we're in this peak noise period. John was talking about with the with the the magic pill we call it, yeah. where it just because it, these guys are listed that promoting this pill to fix everything, you know, heart disease and everything. Um, so you, you're in this period of sometimes you fundamentals are ignored and the level of risk or the sentiment overrides the fundamentals, and we're in that phase at the moment. Yeah. We'd say, um, when do you invest? When when would we increase our weighting? either through valuation, if it got to silly valuation, or we saw some data to support the fact that the um, sleep apnea is not fixed yeah. by these drugs. Um, so it's, it's gone, and we don't know the timing. Yeah. Like, So we actually got to be patient and wait for our opportunity uh, until we get either of those two things. Thanks, guys. Uh, the next question is from Christine on Origin. Uh, does WAM leaders hold Origin? And if so, can you comment on the proposed Brookfield takeover? This bid was made over six months ago, and the energy wholesale market has moved significantly higher since then. Um, does that takeover still represent good value for shareholders? That's, that's a great question, Christine, because it is a long time, in particularly in the energy transition world and for Origin, and we've seen what AGL's done in that same period, go from $5 to a peak of 12 uh, the other thing that we got to consider when we talk about origin is that um, Octopus Energy, which is their um, which is their their tech solution, which is their, their own partnership, that is that that has delivered unbelievable results. Standalone, that 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 uh, you know, if that if, if it was listed, I, I we would really struggle to to value it because it's done so well. Um, so you're right in your assessment that the world has changed. You've got Octopus doing well. You've got the, the, the energy futures looking a lot better. Um, we're going to get a bit more clarity on Araring and the industry structure going forward from um, from that perspective. So, does it does it you know in the you know, using uh, the rearview mirror? 
yeah, probably the, the, the bid under value is what Origin should be trading at. If it, In the absence of the bid, where would Origin be trading? I'd, be, I'd guess it'd be north of $9 right now. Um, but you can't make that assessment in the rearview mirror because when Brookfield came to make that bid, it was a full bid at the time. They were willing to take the risk. Um, uh, so they arguably should be rewarded with some upside. Um, to say the deal's completed, probably not yet because there is still some ACCC concerns. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those difficult ones because when Brookfield made that decision to, to make the bid, it was absolutely <coughs> fair. Mm. But looking backwards, probably a little bit on the low side. Yeah, and like 100% because the regulation environment changed as well. Mm. Like the, the Australian energy market has probably matured a little bit yep. is probably the, the comment we'd make where the – you know, we were going to go down this path of closing everything and now there's probably a more moderate approach yeah. and a more staged approach. So the assets are probably worth more mm. than they were. But, again, Brookfield took the risk. So, yeah, um, yeah we do own it. Um, do we think it should be worth more? Yes. Yeah, But, but we always do. Well, we, we haven't been asked yet, but we might as well go off on a tangent on the, on the energy transition. What we're learning around the energy transition is that uh, it's going to take a lot longer and the the practical implications of trying to convert to solar to gas so so to solar to wind uh to other forms of sustainable energy is going to take far longer as the whole world tries to do it at the same time so as the whole world's trying to do it at the same time trying to get the wind the windmills from siemens in germany and getting the people to install them and to find the land for your solar farms it's becoming longer and longer and longer so from that basis uh, what we do need to, what we do understand more and more, is that coal and gas will provide the backstop for a longer phase of this globally, uh, and that transition is going to be longer. It's going to be slower, but it's going to be more sustainable. So we are getting more comfortable with our investments in coal, in gas, from that short period that the stability that they will provide the transition that will eventually occur. Yeah, I mean, it's really gas is yeah. we're yeah. really most positive. Um, gas is going to be crucial for the transition. And I guess that's why we like Santos as well and APA as well, because we think there'll be, you know, critical infrastructure. We're seeing like in Germany, uh, a lot of the the wind farms have been pulled down on maintenance issues and, you know, breaking down and um, baseload effects. So, yeah, the transition is going to be a lot longer than people thought. So on that respect, we are a little bit more bullish on, you know, the the likes of the APAs Mm. and the... um, Santos of the world, yep. um, and also you know energy. But um, I think Origin over AGL. Yeah, be fair. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, we've got time for just one more question. I know there are a few people we didn't get back to, so we will get in contact with you after the call, Graham, Peter, Lawrence. Um, but the one I want to finish on is uh, from Greg, Matt, or John. Can you just comment quickly on the banks if you have an opinion on the big four banks? Yeah, okay. So so banks um are in a really tough spot at the moment. Um more so not not on the the economic picture, but more the, the competition picture. What we're seeing with the banks is generally when you're in CO transition modes, it's a terrible time for competition because everyone's trying to keep market growth. And at the moment we've got potentially three CEOs who are gonna be leaving the Australian banking sector within the next eighteen months. So competition is intense. A and Z are probably, you know, they're probably going pretty hard to make sure the ACCC thinks the market is pretty competitive as well because they really want the Suncorp Bank, which the ACCC knocked back back initially. 
Uh, so for banks, what we're looking at generally for banks is the net interest margin. What what are they earning? Uh, what are they borrowing for? And what are they lending for? And that difference. Um, and at the moment, it's declining. So normally, in an interest rate rising um, environment, it's fantastic for banks. Uh, this time around, it's been terrible because they've competed it all the way, um, and that has not let up. So what what you see is quite often pairs of banks go really aggressive and, you know, the other two fall out of the market. And at the moment, CBA have really pulled out of the market. They went really aggressive early in the year, uh, but they pulled out of the market. So when we assess the big four, what is our pecking order, I guess you could say at the moment? And our pecking order changes based on not the, not the fundamentals sometimes because CBA is the best bank, but it's the most expensive. Um, But we like CBA, we like their management, but, it's one of our smaller weightings at the moment. Um, we actually uh, still like National Australia Bank. Uh, we think they've probably um, been the most disciplined of the banks um, and their business lending um, has been quite strong and their their reporting has been very conservative. So we like NAB. And then the, it falls away quite sharply after that. Um, ANZ, we think, you know, it's got a few issues in New Zealand. New Zealand market has been... Uh, they're not even covering cost of capital for a period, so ANZ have a, has the biggest exposure there. Uh, we also wouldn't want the Suncorp deal to go ahead. We think they've paid, you know, overs for that business. Um, and then Westpac, I mean, they're in a world of pain too, um, trying to get their IT systems up. Um, you know, ASIC um, still breathing down their neck even today. Something came out on them as well. Um, and they've got a big cost investment. So... Again, it's, it's pretty dire for the banks, you know, operationally, not like economically yet because the arrears are ticking up. It's not not bad yet, but I think they're just in a terribly competitive environment um, and we don't think the interest rate cycle um, will continue. So it, we just can't see a clear catalyst for the Australian banks unless valuations got too cheap. So for us, uh, NAB is our top position and then it falls away quite dramatically. The rest are about evens at the moment. So, um, yeah, to get to get excited on the banks, we'd have to see, uh, you know, a cyclical upturn, you know, bottom of the interest rate cutting cycle. So we're actually probably at the opposite end of where we need to be. So uh, hard to get too excited on the Aussie banks at the moment. Great businesses. If you want to hold them for the dividend and not worry about the, the, the share prices, but for us, we're always trying to perform. So... Uh, we can find better opportunities in the market at the moment. Thanks, Matt. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks, everybody, for sending in your questions. Uh, we will have a recording available on our website shortly, and I'll just pass back to the guys for any closing remarks. No, no I'd just like to thank everyone for dialing in and uh, thank you for the continued support. And um, we look forward to catching up with um, shareholders over the next um, period, and hopefully we get back on the road and do some presentations uh, across all the, the capital cities, but just want to thank um, continued support. And, um, yeah, if you ever got questions, feel, feel free to contact us and uh, always happy to answer questions. And, and, and anyone we didn't get to today, uh, I'm sure Olivia and the team will uh, let us know and we'll endeavour to get back to you as soon as we can. So thank, thank you. you.